Welcome back to Real Talk, everyone. I'm here with Saida and Danielle to hey. talk about community journalism. Today we've got a practitioner and a professor. I'm not a journalist, um, but I do love people and I love stories. I love democracy. I love journalists. Um, but Danielle, you do have some journalism training. Uh, I do. Some I have a bachelor's in journalism, uh, and I had a very long road to get there. <laughs> I started in 2009. Um, got. Between changing schools and stuff like that, got to 2013, 14, and that, that's a lot of time in between. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and kind of felt a little weird about where it was going. I remember I went to a um, a conference, and we were I was in a session where they were teaching the older journalists how to use Twitter for journalism. <laughs> uh, and then that was the era where... TMZ started getting really big and for some reason reputable. So I kind of like fell out of love with it. Interesting. Um, and so I left. I dipped. I jumped ship. Um, and came back in two, 2020. 2020. Yeah. During the, during the pandemic. I was like, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, so I went back to school <laughs> and was like, you have to finish your journalism degree. Um, and then was just randomly going to an event because that's what I do and ended up sitting next to Lucy and she was asking me questions, taking pictures, doing her job and getting to know me. I was like, yeah, I'm a journalism student. She was like, do you want a job? And I was like, oh, snap. It's crazy. <laughs> it's never happened to me mm. before. <laughs> and that's how I started working freelance uh, for the arts paper. Um, and Lucy is one of those people that is like, I don't think I've ever seen a person that just knows everyone and is everywhere at once. I don't mm -hmm. think I've ever been to an event or anything where I haven't said the name Lucy Gilman. And people are like, oh, my God, Lucy. And I'm like, how does she know everyone? I aspire. I aspire to this. Um, so when I think of community journalism, I'm like, it is Lucy. Because mm. she knows everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone. And she's not even from here. So it's like insane to me. She's she's made her way through the entirety. I, I, I'm convinced that she's met everyone in the entire city and beyond. <laughs> I'm absolutely convinced. Or if she hasn't met them, they know who she is. They know exactly who she is. I'm convinced. Um, so yeah, so welcome, Lucy, um, to, to, to our podcast. Oh my goodness. That was, um, I, I feel, first of all, I do not know everyone, but I feel very humbled <laughs> by that. I also feel, Danielle, so incredibly lucky to to work with you. Uh, for folks who don't know, Danielle Gamble is a freelancer for the arts paper and just an incredibly talented and dedicated uh, journalist. And I love getting to work with other people who care as much about community reporting as I do. Um, so, uh, just very briefly, I, I guess my road to journalism. Were you mm -hmm. interested, or or do you want to do introductions uh, for? No, I think I actually go for it. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Um, so my my road to journalism is not sort of the straightforward path that mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of folks take. I loved um, art for I've I've loved art forever and ever. I was that like weird kid who went to creative writing camp and spent my time in the art museum and did all of those things. Um, oh, and I was a drama kid, like a big dorky drama kid in high school and college. And um, and then I was working for a museum in New Haven. That's what brought me here. My degrees are in art history. Huh. And someone said, we need an arts reporter. Oh, wow. Do you want to go out and report and do like the night music beat? Huh. At the time I was younger than I am now. <laughs> um, so I was like, Sure, you're telling me I can get free tickets to cover stuff <laughs> and then I can write it. And the only catch is I have to stay up until 2 a.m. and then wake up at 8 a.m. for my other job. Cool. 
that. I'm 21. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not 21 anymore. And I can't do that. And my knees and back can't do that anymore. I um, that. But, but I, um, I ended up leaving museums to help start and run a, a radio station, WNHH, which is the sister to the New Haven Independent. And while I was running WNHH, I also wrote for the Independent. And um, about five and a half years ago, I jumped from the Independent to the Arts paper um, as it was declaring editorial independence. And I thought, I want to be part of this. And if it goes down, I'll go down with the ship. Uh, so far, we've we've stayed afloat. Um, I, Danielle, I think you're right that I know a, a lot of people, including mm-hmm. some who don't like me in New Haven <laughs> because mm-hmm. of the work we do with the arts paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is is partly uh, mm-hmm. speaking truth to power yep. mm-hmm. through journalism and, and doing arts with an anti-racist lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really fun work, and I feel very lucky that I get to do this every day. Yeah, nice. Mm, Lucy, right. thank don't you. Don't you for guys being love here. Lucy already? We do. <laughs> I love Lucy. We do, we do. Um, also with us today is Dr. Sue Robinson, who I've known for, at this point, I can say many years now, um, from UW-Madison. She's the Helen Firstbrook Franklin Professor of Journalism. And I know that usually we don't do like formal intros, but as I was looking at three of her book titles, Ooh. I thought, you know what, all of much of what you need to know and why that she's here with us um, to have this conversation is frankly in the titles. Um, So from 2018, Networked News, Racial Divides, How Power and Privilege Shape Public Discourse in Progressive Communities, of which Madison is one. Um, News After Trump, Journalism's Crisis of Relevance in a Changed Media Culture, a Rapidly Changing Media Culture. Um, and then uh, the forthcoming book, How Journalists Engage a Theory of Trust Building Identities and Care. Um, and Sue is just generally a wonderful teacher, community member. She also worked as a journalist before becoming a professor. And she knitted my baby's very favorite blanket, like the, oh, the blanket, the one. Um, so it's a we very important that. part of my daily life. <laughs> we love that. And I tell her, look, baby, it's not everyone who is a fancy journalism professor knit them their baby blanket. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, so, Sue, welcome. So glad to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. And when Casey emails, one jumps. <laughs> oh, not, I wish more jumped, but thank you, Sue. <laughs> so, um, and it's and it's funny because one of the reasons I got to know Casey so well was because I asked him to help me with this journalism for social change community based learning class that I'm actually teaching right now. Um, I only teach it every two years because it involves sending my students out into after school programs to train these kids in storytelling skills and how to amplify their own voices. Um, and it was kind of a radical idea for our journalism school. So I had to tap Casey, who is actually in another department at the time, uh, to help me out. Um, and so I think about you all the time, every mm-hmm. time I'm teaching that class, uh, for sure. Uh, but yeah, no, thanks for having me here. I was a journalist um, for about 13 years, pretty mainstream, um, very, very white journalist, had mm-hmm. no idea uh, that I was sort of reifying all kinds of systems of oppression um, in the course of my reporting. And it wasn't until I embarked on that first book that you mentioned mm. uh, that my whole life um, took a 180-degree turn. And I went on my own racial journey and discovered all kinds of things about my family history uh, and myself um, and so now my mission is to disrupt um, mainstream journalism mm. and particularly um, journalism schools. Mm. Yes. We love that. We absolutely love we that. We love that. <laughs> um, well, I do not have a journalism background. So <laughs> the questions I'm asking are going to be a little more surface level if you will but you're a consumer you're i also, am a consumer also a podcaster now oh. so so you are in the journalism Jeez, you actually are you know. so go ahead i'm very beginner out. very beginner <laughs> i can learn much from this conversation i'm mm. sure um so thinking about just news and media and journalism how how does society consume news now what does that look like right probably not like when i grew up my 
I it actually, was a my, newspaper. My parents still get the Washington Post every day. Oh God, yeah. But it was just like this tactile part of my yeah. like childhood. Like I played with the newspaper. I read the comics. Yeah. I read the State of the Union when it came out. Like I mean, it was just like, right. I mean, I can feel it. I can smell it. Mm-hmm. And it's not, that's not. That's not a thing now. You know, we have social media. So I'm like, hmm. What are we talking about on Instagram? And then you have like the clickbaits and you, mm-hmm. you know, the consumption of media in regards to news is so different now. Right. So from two individuals who have been in it for a while and seen kind of the change, what, what does that look like, especially over the last few years? Sue, go go for it. I literally, you wrote the book, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, she wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I was interested in Lucy, how you're, how you're doing it differently, uh, today. Uh, I used to be, my first book was actually supposed to be, um, how information flows through local communities with digital platforms. So that was back in, you know, 2010 ish. And it quickly became clear to me that that wasn't where it was at. Um, although what was happening in those realms um, exacerbated problematic discourse that was happening in the more traditional um, news outlets, uh, as well as sort of the power elites and, and how journalists approach their jobs. So mm-hmm. what I, that that was huge, right? The, the, the change in platforms. Um, what we talked about in our News After Trump book, which came out in 2021, was looking at how politicians um, were using all of these different platforms to circulate different kinds of information in such a savvy way that we now really have two information spheres. Mm-hmm. Um, one, this conservative led by Fox News, uh, and one that's mainstream um, and with liberal tendencies led by the New York Times and Washington Post and CNN. Uh, And so what that has meant is that these digital platforms have afforded these two parallel and not a lot of crossover uh, journalistic endeavors, which means that we no longer have a shared set of facts um, with which to do democracy, what Casey was talking about earlier. Um, and so so we really find this disturbing and super problematic. And frankly, nobody knows how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm hoping that Lucy and some of your work, um, <laughs> you've figured it all out. Uh, <laughs> so maybe I can interview you for my next book. Um, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think on my most pessimistic days, Sue, I what I see is that we're very siloed. And platforms across social media, so like Facebook and like Twitter, but also I, so I, I teach young people as, as part of my work, I do something called the Youth Arts Journalism Initiative. And it's usually a group of like 10 to 12 high schoolers who start in the spring and then stay with us um, for eight to 12 weeks. And then some of them stay with us for as long as they want. But our first question to them is, where do you get your news? And uh, we see a lot of TikTok, Instagram, uh, Facebook is now for old people, so, <laughs> for sure. yep. of, of whom I am one. Um, and uh, and so I think when I'm pessimistic about it, I think, oh my goodness, because of the rise of these platforms, there isn't nuance, there really isn't discussion, there isn't interest in anything outside of an echo chamber. And I see that replicated uh, oftentimes within, like in in the in the real world, right? Um, I want to believe that discourse is still possible, and I think that as journalists, actually, part of our responsibility, and, and I tell the young people I work with this, um, part of our responsibility as journalists is to kind of break through that noise. One of my most formative um, experiences as a young reporter when I was working for the New Haven Independent was I was covering um, a protest against Planned Parenthood that was happening on the New Haven Green, which is sort of the the center, like the heartbeat of New Haven. And I remember I came back to my office and I was really angry because 
when I, as a reporter, go out to report, I also bring the fact that, like, I'm a disabled woman. I bring my uterus with me when I, you know, cover assignments, and that's just sort of part of the job. Um, and I was so angry after the protest. And I remember saying to my editor, like, these horrible people, blah, blah. And he said, how do you know anyone is a horrible person? And how dare you, as a journalist, make that sort of value judgment on a person? Mm. And this was probably like nine or 10 years ago. Hmm. And it has so stayed with me. Um, and so, and we can get into this. So while I believe that sometimes things like both sidesism are in fact a lie, the flip side of that is I, I want to believe and I try to practice the belief that like discourse can and should still exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. Did I answer the question? I'm really sorry if no, I didn't. No, yeah, you're doing yeah. fine. My, yeah. my brain is a crazy you're and sometimes fine. terrible place. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, I mean, you're, you're speaking to um, ethics and to when, I mean, mm-hmm. like, there are points, and I think the same thing, is, frankly, is relevant as a teacher also, um, because we get challenged to be, having to be our best selves, benefit of the doubt, Um trying to understand the complexity of where something is coming from and, and beyond like our, our own initial reaction. And sometimes that's easier than other times. You know, one of the things that I do is I work with newsrooms now, consulting with them and working with training programs like Harkin, Solutions Journalism Network, Trusting News and um, Spaceship Media. And what we do is we try to retrain uh, mainstream journalists in engagement practices. Um, And then I evaluate how it went and then we improve the trainings for the next iteration. So that's kind of what I've been doing. And last summer, we asked nine newsrooms to talk, to well, really to listen, uh, to disengaged community members. Um, And about half, yeah, about half of them went right to conservatives Um, Because that was the audience that they were losing and that they were trying to rebuild. And the other half went to um, either immigrants or um, Native communities or um, African-American communities. But what we asked them to do is, all right, hold these listening sessions for an hour or so and just listen to what they have to say about journalism and about your brand and all of that. And so we got about 87 conversations, transcripts. So we, my, me and my research team read them over, and it was so vitriolic. I mean, it was just them unleashing on these journalists. And I became very pessimistic um, that we were ever going to get back to a shared set of facts. But then we did post-surveys um, with both the community members and the journalists. You know, how did it go for you? Um, did you do you feel like this experience built trust for you? And what was really interesting was that more than two thirds of our community members said, "Yes, uh, this this experience of being listened to built trust for me with your brand and with this reporter." Mm. And more importantly, a third of them now these are completely disengaged uh, community members said, "I'm going to subscribe." So that rebuilt some of my optimism. And now we're trying to figure out how can we scale that, right? Right. Because it's, and and it was very difficult for the reporters because they, there was a lot of hate um, and kind of a lot of ridiculousness uh, that was being spewed at them. You know, for example, a lot of the conservative people they talked to, they didn't want any information, any news at all that had anything to do with LGBTQ plus or immigrants or African-Americans, even the very topic didn't matter what the content was, even the topic made wow. them feel like, oh, you're liberal mm-hmm. and there's not going to be anything in here for me. So we have to figure out like, yeah, how do we deal with that paradox, right? In mm-hmm. a way that's still, because of course we can't go back to not allowing all of these different voices to be heard, right? Right. And that, you know, I just think about, well, I mean, listening is, I think, one of the most important things a journalist can do, like paying attention, listening. in a de- Like we sort of think about a reporter going out and talking to people, but it's really like listening. 
um, and then telling a story. But I, I think too about the pressures in this current, you mentioned subscribers in this current environment where, um, you know, subscriptions are going down. People are annoyed about paywalls. Um, Mm -hmm. but I also think that, I don't know if I have no data to support this, but it does seem like more people are willing to pay for quality journalism. Um, and, and to say like, Oh, I didn't subscribe to this before, but actually this, this really matters to me. Um, and I'm going to subscribe to the Atlantic or to, um, the times or the post or the new Haven register, whatever that might be. Um, but I think with all of these pressures, shrinking newsrooms, consolidation, mm-hmm. like it becomes hard to do that good work um, because there's so much pressure to like get stories out fast, um, mm-hmm. which I think is why Lucy, I, I'm pretty sure I talked about this before we hit record, but <laughs> if I'm looking for a, a, a story that includes really deep context with a lot of, you know, rich information around, community in New Haven, I'm going to read Lucy's articles. Mm -hmm. And in part that stands out because it's so often just, you know, uh, other reporting for, um, you know, the, the, these pressures of having like fewer reporters, more reporting to do. You just don't have time to do that kind of work. So we have more stories that read to me like press releases. Yes. And, and it becomes harder to find, you know, like you have your list of sources that you can go to easily and quickly, people who pick up the phone and talk to you. It's harder to, to engage with people, mm-hmm. takes more time, um, who you are not otherwise connected to. I think it's also hard, um, and some of that shrink might be because it's hard to recruit students to want to mm-hmm. be journalists now. Mm-hmm. And both of y'all work with young people doing yeah. this work. So a lot of the kids that I see that, you know, or in the program are like struggling, you know, and I think it might be because of this transition um, mm-hmm. between what was journalism and what journalism is becoming. And it, they, I mean, they just didn't grow up having the newspaper every morning mm-hmm. and the, and all the things and, you know, finding out about the Twin Towers on Yahoo News <laughs> early <laughs> in the morning before everyone else. Um, so I think it's really hard just in that because, there are some schools that aren't giving giving a lot of thought to that transition and how they're changing the ways that they're teaching. There's still a lot of, you know, the original way of going about news. Um, and that journalist isn't, the journalist doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of, I always felt, even just when I was first coming in, that I was being taught to be a journalist that doesn't exist anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And in markets that, I won't say we're dying, you know, everybody's like, this is dying, that's dying. It wasn't dying, it was just transitioning. Right. Um, and I feel like it's hard to get even the younger kids because they don't even have that bridge. You know, I'm, I'm a millennial, so I have the bridge of like what was and then what is. They just know what's now. So it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to convince them to be the OG type of journalist and to teach just to that when that's not even really the type of journalism that they see. And you know how journalists have been kind of vilified now. You know, either they're not credible or that looks like too much pressure or the the craziness of hard news now. I thought hard news was terrible before, but hard news now, you got to cover mass shootings in schools. Mm. And, yeah. you know, like the content is consistently becoming really, really hard. Right. Um, and the like, oh, sorry. No, yeah, go ahead. Oh, just the vicarious trauma is also really real. Uh, Danielle, there's so much there that I want to unpack. And I I also want to hear Sue unpack. Um, But, you know, Casey, really quickly returning to your point, I want to say two things, which is one, I have a luxury that a lot of reporters don't have, and that is time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also being within. So I exist within an arts council but I'm editorially independent from them, which is a pretty unique model. Mm-hmm. Um, and within that, my boss has given me just like the gift of trust and the gift of time. Mm-hmm. And so she has said, I trust that you know what stories to pursue. So like the other day I was you know, reporting probably three stories at the same time, but I was able to take two and a half days writing the obituary of a young person who had a horrible hiking accident and um, and just died in a horrible way, 
was very dear to a lot of folks in, in this community um, and was able to take the time to talk to his friends, to talk to his family, to talk to people he knew in college and in graduate school. And in most newsrooms, I just want to like recognize the fact that there are journalists who are incredibly dedicated, mm -hmm. whose editor is riding their butt on a deadline. Mm -hmm. And so they don't get to have that luxury. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I think of people I know at the New Haven Register, not to throw any uh, outlet under the bus, but who are just incredibly dedicated, who have to meet an 8 p.m. deadline that means that if the West Haven City Budget Council meeting goes over 8 p.m., it doesn't matter. Half of that meeting is not going to be in their article. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I want to recognize that. And I think you're absolutely right that this pressure of shrinking newsrooms, shrinking bases that may or may not subscribe to a paper. We don't have a paywall. And I feel really, really lucky that we get to do that. But it's also because I exist within an organization that has other streams of income coming in, both from um, like grants and then individual private donations. Um, the other thing, Danielle is, you know, I feel like, and Sue, I don't know if you feel this way. I feel like we saw like 2020 laid bare uh, with the pandemic, with the sort of the parallel pandemics of uh, like racism and white supremacy, which has existed in America for over 400 years um, with the, the pan, the COVID-19 pandemic, it sort of laid very, very bare um, everything that was wrong. Like all of these deep, deep issues that were wrong, including in newsrooms mm -hmm. And then there was like the great gaslighting of 2020 to 2023, where people were like, we're going to bounce back and do it exactly the, the way we did it before. Yep. Yay, capitalism. And um, I, I think that I get this really unique opportunity to rethink what a newsroom could be. Mm -hmm. But a lot of reporters don't get that. And so, like, I feel really lucky. I, I work with reporters who are moms who have really weird funky schedules because they've got an 18 month old at home. I work with reporters who have a, a lot of non-traditional paths to journalism because my path was non-traditional too. And, um, you know, I've also seen a lot of newsrooms, including one that I've worked in that are not going to take a chance on you if you don't deliver consistently on deadline. And, mm -hmm. and so I think part of it is, are we going to rethink the paradigm? I'm not super optimistic that we are. I'll jump in on that because everything that um, Danielle and Lucy is talking about, we're trying to grapple with, you know, all of us, the journalists and the journalism teachers and the people who study journalism. And there's this tension um, that's bubbling up that we cannot continue to ignore. And one is, is the journalism industry, mainstream journalism industry is, is dying, right? For lack mm -hmm. of a better term. And, mm -hmm. and it needs to transition as Danielle so eloquently put. Um, but the, the way that the entire industry and the profession as it exists in Western countries have decided is the way to go is engagement journalism, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to move away from objectivity and these traditional sort of practices, and we're going to move towards teaching our journalists how to listen, how to reconnect with audiences, how to um, move away from an institutional kind of trust and towards building a more relational kinds of trust, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't know if that's going to work. We've just, there's a ton of money being thrown at it. And there's a ton of programs, and that's what my book, my forthcoming book does, is it documents that movement. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side is we also have these journalists um, who need themselves. They need care themselves. They mm -hmm. need, they're dealing with all of these um, just between World War III and, and mm -hmm. um, you know, mass things. And, I mean, it's just... They themselves are traumatized every day, not to mention the very personal, both physical and verbal attacks that arose during the Trump era mm -hmm. uh, against journalists. And so we have this, this, you know, contradiction where we're saying to journalists, you need to care more. You need to connect more. You need to be with the people and building from within community and no longer standing a critical distance apart. Mm -hmm. Oh, 
But where's your capacity, right? Yeah. You know, especially after 2020, um, who are you? What do you need? Um, you need care too. So we're trying to figure out like, how can we do both of those things, you know, demand more care at the same time where they themselves need to be cared for? And how do we make it safe for folks who have not traditionally been like been amplified in journalism? You know, mm-hmm. I, I think right. a, a lot about this as someone who is a disabled reporter who works with a lot of young, especially because I'm working with young folks. Like I am always afraid that I will send a reporter into a situation that is unsafe for them, even if I have taken every precaution, talked to people beforehand, done pre-interviews. I mean, I, I live in fear of that. Like I covered um, a school lockdown about a year ago where I knew a lot of the kids who were in the school. Mm-hmm. And it like, I... I was fine because I was able to compartmentalize, but I cannot imagine sending a younger reporter into that situation. Like it, it was traumatic. And so, um, oh, yes, all the things, Sue. All the things. <laughs> we have to be getting this into our curriculum. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, but, but at the same time, so, you know, I'll, I'll do, a few sessions on um, trauma-informed reporting and how to stay safe during a protest. You know, I talked to them about writing our lawyer's number down on their on their wrist and carrying milk. And, you know, we, we do all of those things with, and, and the students' eyes are wide and they're freaking out, right? <laughs> of course. We, you can totally understand. Um, so you have to, because it's also the best industry in the world, right? It's the best job in the world. Mm-hmm. It's adventurous and you get to know so much and you meet so many people and you get to tell stories and stories that aren't heard. And um, But yeah, I, I, I hear you, Lucy. Um, and, and I'm sorry you had that experience. I Thank have you. a series of questions. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening and I'm going to go back a smidge um, because Casey made a point about um, the current articles coming out sound like press releases. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm more of a um, research article person, right? So I'm accustomed to that kind of reporting, right? Like you're reading research articles and it's like fact, 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 numbers to support. Even growing up, when I think about the kind of news I consumed, it was Wall Street Journal. It either was or it wasn't. It was very objective in that respect, <laughs> right? Reading the Wall Street Journal. I was. I went to school in Wall Street. My high school was on Wall Street. So, so like, you have to. And one of my classes was economics. So we <laughs> oh and we God. had like mock. <laughs> this is the most fancy New York. <laughs> we had like mock stock trading, <laughs> oh, right? Yeah. So I'm looking at okay, what's the political climate? That's facts. What's the financial market? That's fact, right? So when you all are talking about the experience of journalism and going out in the community and listening to people, how are you, um, how are you able to incorporate that into an article while still being objective and not biased? Oh God, that word objective. Well, it's true. You have to have like this bird's eye lens. I will let you know the <laughs> secret that we are learning more and more. Tell. There is no such thing as objectivity. Oh. In journalism, there it is. That's in in life, you are going to come into every situation, everywhere you go, as yourself. Now you can address your bias, but you will always be you when you walk in a room. True. So when you have reporting that might, you're like, mm, they said they're a little crazy. And even you know, <laughs> if you're reading the different um, parallels between like the conservative or the liberal, they trend a certain way because they are who they are. Mm. Not just where they write. They yeah. go where they want to go because they are who they are. But their objectivity is through that lens always because that's who they are. So to me, I'll say that I, I, don't, I don't believe in objectivity. I believe in letting people know who you are and then you can address how I feel and how I write and what my mind does. But I, I don't believe in objectivity. Even in news reporting? It's not, it's not real. It's a it's the biggest lie I've ever seen. Mm. 
What do y'all think? That's what I think. Experts, please weigh in. Yes, please. (laughs) Saeed is disruptive. I'm confused. The the strategist is like, what? (laughs) I'm looking for the logic. (laughs) Go for it. I mean, same Danielle. I I gave up objectivity, I don't know, 15 years ago. (laughs) Quit. Um, Mm -hmm. but, But that's not to say that the opposite of objectivity subjectivity mm-hmm. is the way to go mm-hmm. right you still have to have a commitment to facts and accuracy mm-hmm. strive to, for making sure all voices are heard right so i don't think so we often have these binary conversations around mm-hmm. objectivity it's actually much more complex than that um and so so what we try to do is um talk to and this is part of the retraining we've been doing asking journalists to reflect upon their own identities, um, who they are in all kinds of ways, not just racially um, or um, class-wise, but who who they are. Are they a parent? Are they, um, you know, how, were they educated in a journalism school? Because that apparently matters. I, I mm-hmm. did survey and it showed people who went through journalism school have a much different understanding of how journalism should be than people who didn't. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so that's what we're trying to do is to talk to everybody about in our students, you know, how do you identify, how are you going to mitigate um, those biases that you're bringing with whenever you approach a story? Um, but I, I want to mention one, one um, sort of gloomy dark cloud that's hanging over all of this new training. And that is as these states continue to ban mm-hmm. um, the ability to talk about identity, right? right? Whether, however, we're going to talk about identity, it's going to make our jobs, all of our jobs uh, so much harder, Yes, um, particularly given, you know, our multiculturalism um, throughout this country and all countries. And, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm at a loss as to how I'm going to do my job um, if this becomes something that's either federal or we lose our democratic governor right now because there are a ton of bills right now that would make what I do illegal. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> no, I, I mean, yes, I, com- I completely agree. It's this, optimism. It's this moment. Um, I think we're at a really scary moment and I mean, Connecticut on the face of it is a very blue state. I like to tell people it's a much more purple state mm-hmm. yeah. than um, they think. So I've, I I want to address two things. One is, you know, the facts and ob- objectivity. I kind of gave up on, I, I try to leave at home, right? So I'm, uh, I'm a 33-year-old married woman who is a huge advocate of birth control and, um, also, like a practicing Jewish woman, I've voted Democratic in every election, I think, in my life. And I think that objectivity is a kind of a lie. Um, but as far as the facts and figures, I take those with me, especially like right now we're in the middle um, in, in Connecticut, but I think most states in the middle of the legislative session and uh, both city and state budget season. So what I do is I take those numbers and then I say, how is this a human story? Mm-hmm. And find the human story. And, and that's what I'm really, really interested in doing. Mm-hmm. But I think also, like, even within Connecticut, um, we at, at our publication, we've gotten a lot of flack from uh, fellow folks in the sort of in the state's Jewish community, of which I am a part, mm. um, who are upset that we have written about the fact that Connecticut has the country's first Palestine museum. Uh And so Uh we see this, and I think going back to the idea that people are increasingly siloed, Uh it's not a discussion point. It's a, you must be a horrible person for writing about this. Uh That is so hard. Yeah. How do you you respond to that? Um, Sometimes I don't, if there are certain (laughs) words that are used toward me. Um, like, like I will say I, the B word and the C word are kind of my hard boundary. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, but sometimes I do engage. I, I, I will say if there isn't like really objectionable language, I usually say, Hey, here's my cell phone number. Give me a call. If you want to have coffee, let's have coffee in a public place. Um, mm-hmm. and, and let's talk about this because I, 
you know, and sometimes I will say in emails, um, I don't know if this is going to change your mind, but you should know that I'm a, like, I'm a practicing Jew and I take my religion pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. And also this is something that's happening in our arts community. That's very important. Um, and I love, I love that we have a museum that is documenting the Palestinian diaspora mm -hmm. and it pains me that there has to be a museum that is documenting that diaspora, mm -hmm. right? And, and that is part of the discourse. And that's part of my job as a journalist. It's interesting because to me, it lets you know who only cares. Like, so I'm sure a lot of those people believe in objectivity <laughs> and objective news. But those are also people that like to keep other people out. Yeah. So that's why, that's one of the reasons I don't believe in objectivity because I feel like the way that Lucy goes about it, and she writes it so beautifully, guys. I mean, honestly. We'll, we'll link to her work. <laughs> yes. Um, the way that she creates a story and makes it a human story is so inspiring because you get to see that these stories are not just stories for information, but they're stories for you to get to know the world around you. Like, that's really what it is. That's what journalism is. You're supposed to know the world around you. And so when you get to put some of that human element and you get to say, here's here, look at this thing and look at that thing. Um, it really brings a different perspective. And also for you to be able to do a story with your identity being that. Like, that's where it's great to know, who am I in this room? Because this is a really hard thing for me to cover. But also, I'm covering it because it's important. So for you to be able to say, I am, but, is amazing to me. Instead of just saying, I have I have no stake in this game. I'm just writing it from a, a blank lens. I feel like you don't really get what's happening in the room when you write from that blank wall of just facts. And, you know, like, that's great. And I'm sure that works in stats. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, to tell a story about who humans are, I really believe you have to come at it from a human element because it really gets to the heart of what's happening. It's not just like, here's what's happening. Here's the date. Because, to be honest, anyone can write that, Right. Um, but to be a journalist and say, here's who's in the room. Here's how the room felt. Here's here's what the, the tension was. Here's what the excitement was. This is what made people happy. Like, that's how you get to let people know what the world is looking like, what the world is, is doing. And I just think it's inspiring to be a person of an identity that should be different and should be polarizing and to go into a space with love and care to be able to hold their story and you know, even go at your own people and be like, hey, like, I did this because it matters. I did this because these people matter. And I don't just want to be a person to come from my identity, which I know what it is. When you can sit in yourself and just know that that is, it's so much easier to cover other people. Um, because you're like, I'm in this room, but it doesn't change who I am. So that's why I love, like, getting rid of this idea of objectivity, because it really makes you sit in a, in a room and you're just like, who am I in here? You have people that question themselves all the time. How do I cover the story? Because I'm a da 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 da. But if you say I'm a da 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 and I'm going to cover the story, like that gives you the power to be able to look at it from a lens of humanness, to look at it from a lens of it's not mine, but I really want to carry this correctly, you know. Um, and that's what I, I I just yeah I just I love Lucy. I also <laughs> think, I think our objectivity is also used now like colorblindness yes. um, colorblindness. as a way to sort of hide behind and yes. and to say you know like well we don't have to talk about xyz doesn't matter it doesn't exist mm -hmm. we have to stick with the quote-unquote facts um mm -hmm. in ways that can be obviously really damaging and sue i hadn't thought about that piece about um wisconsin which is always contentious place because <laughs> um, all the focus right now is on florida but then there are all these other places that are you know an election away from being in the same spot i totally am on board with what you're saying um, and, and we're, the whole industry is, is moving, um, towards what you're talking about doing in terms of the, the, I am this, and I'm going to cover that and be transparent. One of the things we're finding though, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, mm -hmm. is that as we're doing these, we're doing a different, um, work group of workshops where we're working internally, mm -hmm. um, asking journalists in a newsroom to hold these internal conversations about mm -hmm. who they are mm -hmm. and to make sure that everybody who's present in the newsroom feels comfortable saying who they are. Mm -hmm. And, and that includes conservative journalists, mm -hmm. right? 
So the little little fly in the ointment is what do you do when you find out that these journalists um, believe in fake news or didn't believe that Biden won the election? Or mm. so that's what we're coming into. We're, we're having these debates. Like, so then can you still send that reporter out to cover? Um, yeah, I'll just mm. I'll, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I that's think this really is Saida's question. nightmare. <laughs> that's this a really good question. <laughs> it is. It truly is. Because fake news is, is my nightmare anyway. Yes. All, it's just so abundant. And people take it and run with it. And then it just keeps, it's yeah. like, it just keeps multiplying. It's a virus. Honestly. What I think Goodness. is the most detrimental thing. First of all, I've got a lot of things. But <laughs> I think it really has to do with education. Because I come from a magnet school background. So I never knew my privilege. We can't even that. use that anymore. Well, I, listen. You know, I, my mom stumbles on things all the time, and I feel bad because I know it's from a lens of um, the lack of critical thinking and what mm. was taught. Like, critical thinking is taught in more than just a classroom. It's taught in methodology. It's taught in how you do things. Um, and I feel like people that don't get the ability to use that skill, it's just like a language. You have to use it to be able to speak it. And I feel like the more you get away from that, the easier it is for you to be reeled in by something that looks sure. very presentable. Um, and so I always feel bad for those people because it's it, it's exploitive, you know, and it really is difficult, especially with the transition of our whole industry for people to say, is this one of the new things? Like, is this how they're doing things now? I'm not even going to sit here and lie to you and say the onion didn't give me a few times before somebody <laughs> sat me down and was like, this is what sure. the onion is, ma'am. And I was like, oh, for real? Because they got me a few times, <laughs> you know, so it, it really is hard even in a place where we're confused, you know? And even when I was talking about earlier with TMZ being now reputable, I now have to sit with the fact that if TMZ said somebody died, they did. And it's fact, you know? Somehow, because I did see something and someone was talking, at least a few of them did actually graduate from journalism school. Um, <laughs> but, like, I have to contend with now they do things that are actually true. Before it was just like, I mean, what are you talking about? This is all tabloid and gossip. Da -da 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 yep. gossip. But now they, they do have a reputation as some type of reputable source in some capacity, in some capacity. Um, and so I have to contend with that as a person that still believes in <laughs> real journalism. Uh, but, I, but I can't deny that. So now in a muddy space that I have to deal with and I have to sift through. I'm asking people that don't have that expertise and don't have that ability to critically think in that space because they don't know what is and isn't. I'm asking them to know what truth is. And what that yeah. also means is like when we degrade public education and defund it yes. at K-12 and, and higher ed, then we are like, these are two sides of a coin, right? Mm -hmm. Like a democracy needs engaged, educated people yeah. to function. And not just to become laborers, but to become That's right. people that can people. And okay, That's so right. I'm, yeah, Lucy, go ahead. Oh, just really quickly. I mean, one thing, so uh, New Haven used to teach this thing that uh, was called democracy school, where it taught people about the city and the way that city departments worked and the way that you could testify for public hearings and all of this good stuff that is not inherently obvious to people. Mm -hmm. And this is something Danielle and I have talked about. It's something uh, my partner, who's also a reporter and I have talked about, is like, how do we do democracy school but for local journalism, where it's media literacy that does not feel partisan, that does not feel, you know, instantaneously aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, because, Sue, when you were talking, I like I have not worked with reporters who have have said, I don't believe Biden won the election. But I have worked with reporters who are genuinely very afraid of the COVID-19 vaccine. And that's been a discussion where I've said, well, do you feel like you can go cover this vaccine event at a theater or at a public space or, or something like that? Or do you feel like I'm pressuring you as an editor? And um, I, I, I don't know. I'd love to believe that we could have like some like nationwide media literacy summer camp or something like that. I don't think it's going to happen. But well, you know, we could truly talk to you all, all day. And we were just saying as the Zoom cut out at our publicly funded institution. Um, <laughs> Oh, we were just saying like, oh my gosh, this is so juicy. We need a part two. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if we could just have a, a, a couple quick closing thoughts from y'all as our journalism professor has to hop over to class. Um, 
just about what you're seeing, like the students who are, are coming to you both in either capacity, you know, what is bringing them there? Um, what do you see in them? Um, it doesn't mean you have to end on a positive note here because, uh, you know, <laughs> we have space for all of it. But just curious about what you're seeing working with young people. The young people are awesome. Um, and I actually am very optimistic for journalists. I'm, I'm maybe I'm one of the few journalism professors who are, but I see, as Danielle was mentioning, the transition happening um, into something different, into something better, um, into all these different opportunities, you know. Uh, to do journalism in different kinds of capacities, whether we're talking about a nonprofit or we're talking about an NGO or we're talking about even even branded companies right now are starting to have their own newsrooms. Um, and there's all just different kinds of entrepreneurial ways in which we we're doing journalism today and making money um, that I, I'm very optimistic. And I think our young people coming up are so positioned well for it, right? Because mm-hmm. A lot of these, I'm finding a lot of these students have, were required in high school to do community service, Mm -hmm. um, to be in community in a way I never, Mm -hmm. they never even talked about that was going through high school. And so they're primed to do this kind of work, um, this, this information work uh, that is in community um, with, with all these people. So I'm super stoked. And otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do my job, frankly. Yeah. Lucy, how, how are you feeling? Oh, I, I feel like that, too. So I, I think the babies are going to lead us forward, right? I, I also reported in schools, and it's my favorite, favorite, favorite part of what I do. Um, so the the students in, in Yaji, the Youth Arts Journalism Initiative, they're a little younger than college. They're in high school. But I would say they come to us for two reasons. One is they're really, really passionate about something. The climate crisis has been very much on people's minds. I would say in the past years, we get usually like three to five students who are really, really invested in doing climate reporting on a hyper-local level. Um, Or they have a really healthy skepticism of the news that they're getting. Um, Or they're angry. We've had people come to us and say, I'm here because I'm mad about the mayor. And I'm like, great, he works for you. Let's talk about it. Mm. Um, Yeah. But I, Sue, I agree. I think um, I I know that the saying the youth are the future is like the most trite thing ever. (laughs) Um, but, But I really do often believe it. And I'm really interested in the fact that youth are excited about different modalities of storytelling. So not everyone's going to read reporting. Some people are going to want TikTok journalism, and mm-hmm. I'm cool with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this has been great, everybody. So yeah. much fun. Yeah. Thank you yeah. both Thank so, you so, so, so much. much. For coming. Such a joy, and perhaps yeah. to be continued. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope so. I need more clarity. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, despite, despite, say, you know, like there, I mean, our world right now is, it's divisive as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. There are many a fly in the ointment. Um, and yet, uh, I think the centering of, of storytelling engagement, we need it more than, more than ever. And, and, and for all the work that both of you do, we're grateful. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.